Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. There is in the city of Jerusalem a place, it's, a, it's more than a building, it's kind of more like a compound. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. What's so significant about this place is that ever since, and this dates back to, to beyond the fourth century, people believe that it marks the spot where Jesus was both crucified, sometimes you'll hear that referred to as Golgotha, or you'll hear that referred to as Calvary, it's where our name as a church comes from. It marks the spot where Jesus was crucified. It also marks the spot where they believe his tomb was, which of course would be the spot of his resurrection. It is, as you can imagine, a very sacred spot in Christendom. It's also a really complicated and, and fascinating place. You're, you're looking at a place that if you, if you go there, you, you quickly realize that it's not a simple place. It's divided up into all these different portions, and for centuries, those different portions have been given over to be cared for, to be the responsibility of, of different denominations, sects, church groups, however you want to look at that. And so it's interesting that if you were to go there, what you would see is there are at least six different churches, six different denominations that lead different portions of this area. There's the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Apostolic, the Roman Catholic, the, the, uh, the Coptic Orthodox, the Ethiopian Orthodox, the Syriac Orthodox. You have all these different church groups, which, which are in, in certain ways different and maybe even at odds with each other, that all give care for, they're responsible for, for different parts of this compound, and it's been like that for centuries. April 10th, 1846, 172 years ago, Good Friday fell on that day on April 10th. And the rulers in Jerusalem, as a part of the Ottoman Empire at that time, were on high alert. They're right there at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The reason being, and this is highly unusual, that Easter, the, the, the week of Easter, and thus Good Friday, fell at the same time for both the Roman Catholics and for the Orthodox. Now, now, we might not be familiar with this as a part of kind of the Western world because we would follow a Catholic calendar when it would come to religious holidays, but Orthodox Easter is often different from the Easter that we might celebrate. Like, for instance, our Easter is this Sunday, April 1st. Orthodox Easter is the following week on April 8th. That's when they would celebrate Easter. On this particular year, 1846, Easter fell on the same day, which means they were going to commemorate Good Friday on the same day. So on that morning at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholics had a race to, to see who could get to the holy place and set their stuff on the altar to be able to celebrate Good Friday first. What's interesting is that as they got there, they didn't just bring their religious elements. There were monks who not only brought incense burners, but also smuggled in pistols and daggers. They came in ready for a fight. The Greeks got there first, and when they got there, they set up, and the Roman Catholics just barely beat them to the altar. The Catholics said, who told you you could celebrate first? The Greeks said, who told you you could celebrate first? And a fight kind of ensued. First, they started pointing fingers and calling names. Then they began to grab every piece of ecclesiastical paraphernalia they could find and start swinging at each other. Crosses, candelabras, crucifixes, lamps. It was an all-out battle until some of the monks who happened to have pistols right underneath the sleeves of their robes started shooting at each other. And there was a shootout at the Holy Sepulchre on April 10th, 1846. Shots were fired. The Ottoman troops came rushing in to stop it, 
But by the time they got there, there were 40 people dead inside the church of the Holy Sepulcher. That doesn't sound like a good Friday now, does it? Look, I'd, I'd never heard that story before until I was reading it earlier this year. I thought, how tragic is that? That there were people who on the day that one died to save us, that 40 people had to die because they fought over it. And for some reason, when I thought about that, that story, there was a passage of scripture that came to my mind. Romans chapter 5, it's this fascinating scripture. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Romans chapter 5, Paul is speaking. Paul the apostle is writing, and he's talking about this day. He's talking about what Jesus did for us on the cross. And he says this, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? When I read that scripture, one of the things that captured my attention was that Paul, and he's writing to, to the church in Rome, but, but in effect, God's word is, is writing to us. Paul, as he writes this, starts calling people names. It's never nice to call someone a name. Is, did your mom teach you that? You don't call people names. I'm going to guess that when the fight broke out, 1846, Jerusalem, Holy Sepulcher, I bet there was some name calling going on between the Greeks and the Romans. I remember when the fight broke out, kind of about, I don't know, 1979, my driveway under the basketball hoop with my cousin Rob. <laughs> guess what started it? Name calling. Didn't help that he was winning, but name calling. <laughs> when you call names, there's this, there's this nastiness that comes out. Nobody likes it, but sometimes you, you got to hear the truth. And so in this passage, Paul calls us, he calls you and I some names. He tells us what we were. Four, four words here that, that actually are pretty strong words. Look at the first thing that he says. Uh, number one, and we see this actually, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Look again at what he says. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In that verse, number one, he says, we were called powerless. He calls us powerless. Now, if you've ever been called weak, if you've ever been called incapable, if you've ever been called incompetent, then you know it's not a nice thing to be called powerless. Powerless means that you're unable to do the thing that needs to be done. And if you've ever been in a situation where somebody's called you that, or let's, let's just be more honest, have you ever been in a situation where you feel like you are, where you're powerless, where there's, where there's nothing you can do to fix or remedy the situation, in those moments, it's, it's tough. It's, it's eye-opening. It can be crushing. It can be overwhelming to go, there's something that needs done here, and I can't do anything about it. You, you might have experienced this maybe just as basic as things that you've got in your world that need fixed, something in your home, something with your car, and you look at this thing and you go, this needs fixed, and your first response, I don't know if you're like me, my first response is always, I can fix this. I can do this. It's not always Rhonda's first response. It's always my first response. Right? I can fix this. 
And then oftentimes you realize little things, yeah, I can fix. Big things, no, I'm, I'm powerless. What's your response? Sometimes my response when I'm powerless is just to go, oh, I can't do it. I got to get somebody to help me. Other times it's, I bet I can fix this. And I get this kind of, I don't know, almost this defiant independence about me. I'm going to fix this thing. I'm going to make this thing right. I'm going to do everything I can to get this back together. And most of the times, it only means that I fail and then somebody else has to come back and fix it anyways, right? Anybody else? We find ourselves, Scripture says, when it comes to our relationship with God, things being right between us and heaven, being able to, to remedy our lives, we find ourselves powerless. And what do we do in those moments? Well, sometimes we humbly go, God, I need your help. Other times we say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try to fix this anyways. I think I can, which makes me think of, of these religious leaders in 1846 in Jerusalem who said, look, our, our being right with God comes from what we do to the point that they wanted to do the things that would try to make them right with God so much that there ended up being an actual battle that took place there inside that holy sepulchre church in Jerusalem because, and this is, this is interesting, oftentimes there's danger in thinking that religion is what makes us right before God. We think that if I just do the religious stuff, then that's, what, that's what's gonna take, that's where I'll find the power for things to be right between me and God. And that story really illustrates for us, and Paul's words really illustrate for us, that when we're powerless, trying to find more power on our own is not going to fix it. That's where some of us are in our lives. It may be why you feel like you need to go to church. I need to go to church because that's what's gonna make me right with God. It may be why some of us work so hard that if I can just work hard enough, then things will be right with God. It may be why some of you feel like you're always fighting because you're always trying to earn or find or get something that comes out of our powerlessness. It's interesting. Paul says, he points this out to us. He calls us this. It's, it's, it's a name he calls us. He says, look, you're powerless. And then we see a second thing in, in verse six. He not only said we were powerless, but it's interesting. Number two, we were called ungodly. Now he's getting a little more, he's getting a little more nasty here, isn't he? Ungodly? Paul, what do you mean by that to call me ungodly? Think of our story back in Jerusalem. What they did, even in the, in, the, in the act of trying to be religious, was so without God. They went in and tried to fix it. They tried to do it all by themselves. They tried to go in and fight for what they thought they were supposed to do. And here's what's so tragic to me about this. They forgot what Good Friday was really all about. They forgot the nature of God and that he's love. They were fighting for themselves. They were fighting without God, and they were truly ungodly. Let me point something out real quick about that story. The Holy Sepulchre, 1846. What's interesting about that story is that there was injustice and death that happened, and somebody thought they were right all in the name of God. They thought God told them to do a certain thing. They thought God made it right for them to act in a way that was wrong. Have you ever heard stories like that? You see it all throughout history as an injustice. And maybe you've even experienced it in your own life. I can tell you a lot of people do a lot of things and they say it's in God's name and it's not in God's name. That God's not behind it. In fact, I think for all of us, there's times when we just have to realize in our own lives that maybe what we're doing is responding in a way that is without God. 
I'm, I'm quick to judge what they did in 1846 and say, what kind of religious leaders were these? When the truth is, maybe sometimes I need to look at my own life because I can roll through life and forget about God too. What, what's it mean to be ungodly? Well, I think it starts like this. We forget about God. We forget about who he is. We, we forget about the way that he wants to be involved and active in our lives. And we try to move through life without getting to that realization. We forget about him. And when we forget about him, then we operate without God. We go through life on our own. We try to do it by ourselves. And we do what we want, whether it's in our pleasure or our frustrations, whether it's in our victories or our challenges. We begin to push forward alone. And that means we make decisions and we make choices based on what we want, not on what God wants. And we never really give a thought to what God thinks. So when we forget about God and we begin to operate without God, here's what happens. We become ungodly. We're, we're without God in the process of our lives. And the truth is, sometimes we, we think of ungodly as this horrible, horrible thing, when it may actually be that it catches us off guard sometimes. Here's the problem with, with being ungodly or being without God. And maybe even some of you find yourself in this place today, that, that we can be in a place where we are without God in our lives and then become so comfortable in that place that we don't even realize that we've ignored him in our lives. There's a pastor named Dan Meyer, and he tells a story about how he traveled to Ecuador to do some compassion and relief work, and he was there for a couple of weeks traveling in the mountains. And when he was there, he came across a, a, a group of, of people, a tribe of the Kucha Indian people. And he met them there, and what he found is that they lived just in squalor. He describes the disease and their disfigured bodies. He, he writes of the bugs and the stench that were everywhere, that they would dig a hole in the ground and then call that their home, that the food they ate was rotten, which was making them sick, and the things that they treasured that they thought were their prized possessions were actually garbage. And he walked through this village and he thought, how, how is it that people live like this? How can anyone live like this? They're sick, they're unhealthy, they're not enjoying life. They could live a life that is so much fuller. And he asked himself, why do they live like this? And he realized they live like this because everybody here lives like this. They don't know that there's a way that's different that they can live. They don't know that there's a life that's abundant and available to them. And I think for a lot of us, this is what it looks like to live a life that's ungodly. We find ourselves in a place without God, and because we've pushed him aside, we fail to realize all the blessings that can come to our lives with God in our lives. If we would open up the grace, the forgiveness, the joy, we think we're stuck just living the way that we are, when what if we open up our hearts and said, God, you come into my poverty, you come into my squalor, you come into my lack, you come into my fear, you come into my doubt, and when we invite him in, instead of living in a way that's ungodly, he comes into our lives and he changes things. How many of you have found that life with God is a whole lot better than life without God? Anybody? It makes a difference in our lives. But Paul has to get our attention. So he says, look, I'm going to call you a couple of names. You're powerless and you're ungodly. Here's a third name that he calls us. We were called sinners in this passage. We were called sinners. I've found that if you really want to make a friend with someone, you don't meet them right away and call them a sinner. They don't like it. People don't like that word. But go back to Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 7. Paul gives us some reality here. He says, look, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Righteous person. Like that's, that's your, your, your top of the shelf. That's, that's, that's the best. 
Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Like a hero, somebody great, they might die for you. But look at what he says in in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, not once we cleaned ourselves up, not once we tried to be good or maybe even worked to be righteous. He says, look, while we were still sinners in, in the worst place, Christ died for us. That's the reality that we see here. And Paul says, look, you, you and I, we're sinners. What's a sinner? Well, a sinner does what is wrong. A sinner looks at the things that, that they do in their lives, and, and you can recognize that according to God's law, according to who God is, what a sinner is, is a sinner does what is wrong. We see this in Scripture, 1 John chapter 3. In the New Living Translation, it says, everyone who sins is breaking God's law for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And if, and if we're going to be just genuine and honest and transparent with each other, that's all of us. We've all done what is wrong. First John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you say you don't sin, the truth is you're a liar. That's almost worse than being called a sinner. <laughs> The truth is that that we all do what is wrong. There's another nuance to this, though, that I think is good for us to think about, right? A sinner does what is wrong, but sometimes a sinner does what seems right. Like there's things that we can justify and say, well, this seems right to me, or we use this language a lot. It feels right. It feels like the right thing to do. And we'll go in a direction that maybe even we know is not what God would say is his best for us, but we can rationalize it away. And we say, well, this, this seems right to me. I think I can do this. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, however, says this. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And there's a lot of us, I think, that sometimes there's things we do and we justify it. Well, I do this because I'm, and you can fill in the blank, Desperate, lonely, tired, this, this makes more sense financially, this makes more sense. Personally, we, we do these things that seem to make sense. We say this appears right to me, but scripture says in the end, it leads to death. Look, I'm only, I'm only saying this because sometimes when I think of the word sinner, I think of people who are worse than me. Anybody else? Sinner, they've gotta be worse than me. And I need to realize that sinner is me because sometimes the very things I think are the right things, God would say are the wrong things. But God, I can explain this. Just because you can explain something doesn't make it right, right? You ever, you ever been late for work? I have this tendency that if I'm late for somewhere, my foot gets a little heavier. Anybody? <laughs> and so if I'm, if I'm going 70 and a 35, I'm saying if, if I'm... <laughs> If I'm going 70 and a 35, one of mommy's finest pulls me over, and they come walking up to the window, I would sit there and go, Lord, I pray it's one of the officers that helps us at the church. I pray they'll recognize me as Pastor Chad. Right? You have that moment? One of mommy's officers comes walking up and says, sir, why are you driving so fast? I'm like, officer, I can explain. I slept in a little bit today. Well, you were doing 70 and a 35. I know. I had to get there fast. It seemed the right thing to me. You know what he's going to do? He's going to look at you and say, you know what seems right to me? (laughs) Right? You're getting a ticket. Because even though you can explain it, you're still a sinner. Fourth thing that Paul calls us, 
Romans chapter 5, verse 10, listen to what he says. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That first line there, for if while we were God's what? <laughs> enemies. That's a strong word, isn't it? I mean, powerless, okay, ungodly, been there, sinner, all of us, enemy, whoa. Seriously? Like, I, I've never been out to get God. How, how can I be his enemy? The truth is, and, and we see this, that our powerlessness that, that leads us to be ungodly, which causes us then to sin, puts us in a place where we're actually in, in animosity towards, we're in enmity towards God. And, and it's an interesting thing to think about because when we think about his enemies, we think about those that put him on the cross. Today's the day that we remember what happened when Jesus went to the cross. Here's just a brief description from scripture. John chapter 19, verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Look at these four words. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. It's interesting that in the gospel, you've just got those four words, right? And there they crucified him. And we, we see the cross and we see it as a symbol of our, of our faith and what we believe. But the Bible doesn't give us like a whole lot of detail. What does that mean they crucified him? Like it doesn't talk about physically what happened to him. It doesn't talk about, about the sight that people saw there. It doesn't talk about the pain. You know why? Because in the first century, when, when the words were written, they crucified him. The people that read it went, because oh, they knew what crucifixion meant. They, they'd not only heard about it, they'd probably seen it. See, the Roman Empire at times along major highways would crucify people right out in the place where people would travel because if they could put that out there right there in front of people, it would tell people, hey, don't mess with us. It would be like doing public executions on Conant Street so that people would know, hey, you cross us, that's what happens to you. And so we, we forget just kind of how intense this was. The nails. And we, we think maybe that was the worst of it. But the Romans had mastered this most excruciating form of execution. It wasn't just the nails. See, what would happen is that the, the position that they would crucify someone in would cause them to be in a place where they would be asphyxiating. They wouldn't be able to get their breath and their lungs would be filling up with fluid. You'd have all this stuff that would be happening and then at some point, that person would, out of desperation, push up on the feet that are nailed, causing more excruciating pain to come through just because the reflex inside of us to try to live would, would cause for that breath and it would be this this ghastly cycle over and over and over again until the person died. We're talking about an execution. We're talking about pain that just to be honest, you and I probably can't even begin to imagine that Jesus went through. That's what his enemies did to him. And then Paul says, you are his enemies. That puts it in perspective. Except I love then what Paul does. Because even though he called you names, right? He says, you were powerless. You were um, ungodly. You were a sinner. You were his enemy. Now he starts to change it as well. Because if you look at this passage, he calls you a certain kind of enemy. He says that we were enemies, but we are justified enemies. He used this word, right? He says that we are justified. 
that's a, that's a biblical word that I've always had a hard time with because I don't use that word a whole lot. I don't know what that word means. What's it mean for me to be justified? A while back, I was, I was driving back from a commitment I had in Tiffin, and as I was driving back, and I think I've shared this before, I was on like a country road, and as I was just driving like out of nowhere, this deer jumps out in front of me, met Bambi head on, wasn't nice for Bambi or my Chevy. And so my car was messed up. And so I had a, the insurance company said, hey, you got to take it to this shop. So I took it to this shop and got it in there. And, and they said, hey, we'll come back after a certain period of time. And I took all these pictures because my car was, you know, just where the, the deer had, sorry, baby. You know, when all that happened, it was messed up. And then I got my car back and it was great. Like, I mean, I looked really closely. I'm trying to figure this whole thing out to the point that if I didn't know what had happened, I wouldn't have known what had happened because it looked so good. It was, it was just as if, the car was brand new. It had been, by those in the body repair shop there, it had been justified. It was just as if it had never been wrecked. And when Jesus comes into our lives, right, there's, there's this enmity, there's this sinfulness between us and God. But when Jesus comes in because of what he did by his blood, it's just as if we had never sinned. He repairs that in our lives. I love this. The New Living Translation, Romans 5, 9 and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I have been made just as if we've never sinned. That's good news, right? Gets better. Look at this. We are not only justified enemies, we are reconciled enemies. We have been reconciled to God. Have you ever been walking in, the, in a store or you, you know, you're pulling in a parking lot or maybe you sit down in a restaurant and you look up and there's a person that you know, it's not just a person, it's that person. It's that person who you had a bad experience with and things were never really made right. You're kind of walking down the main aisle and you see them and as soon as you see them, you duck down the nail polish aisle whether you need it or not. You know what I'm talking about? Because you're like, I just don't, I just don't want to see them because there's still this animosity, maybe even hostility that's there. Anybody like that feeling? <laughs> like, it's horrible. If you've ever been in a place like that, where you're just like, ah, not, not them. How, how would you like that with God? And it says that because Jesus shed his blood for us, we've been reconciled. We're not at enmity with him anymore. We're reconciled enemies, and we're saved enemies. He uses this word saved in this passage. We're, we're saved because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, Every so often you hear a story of in the news or you, you watch a movie where our courageous military goes in and rescues someone. That's what Jesus did. He rescued us from our powerlessness and our ungodliness and our sinfulness and our enmity. He saved us, which means this. And th th we're gonna look at this when we get to communion because he justified and reconciled and saved us. You know what we are? We are loved enemies. Even though we were God's enemy, he loved us by sending his son to die on the cross for us, and that's a powerful thing. And let's just be honest, that's what was missing in 1846 at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, where these 40 people died so tragically, celebrating, remembering how one had died for them. They, they lost out on the love, and what I don't want you to forget today is when you look at this cross, how much Jesus loves you. Do you remember what he did on the cross? I don't know how I would have responded if someone was crucifying me. But as they crucified him, 
Do you remember Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Out of his love, in that moment, he asked for God to give them forgiveness. And you know who else is able to receive that forgiveness today? You and me. You know, in that moment, as he was being crucified, one of the criminals that we read about that was, that was on the side of him on the cross said, Jesus, will you remember me? When you, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? And Jesus makes him a promise. He says, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Extending that love. It's, it's what it was all about. And so then as he was on that cross, as he breathed his last, he offered that love to people. He offered that love to us. He offered that love to you. We were powerless and ungodly and sinners and his enemy. And yet he offers that love to you. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You ready for the good news? We are his enemies no more because of what Jesus did on the cross. So I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And in just a few moments, we're, we're going to come to a place of communion. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to share together in remembering what Christ did for us. Communion is this powerful experience because it allows us to, to tangibly remember this incredible spiritual truth. The bread will represent Jesus' broken body and the, and the cup will represent his shed blood. And when we come to this moment, we're reminded that he died for us because of his love for us to make things right between us and God. And what that means is that at some point, you and I, we, we come to a place in our lives where we realize, God, I can't do this on my own and I need you. But Jesus, I need you to be my savior. That, that word savior is powerful because it means he's the one that brings forgiveness. And some of you know what it's like. Maybe you even feel that today, like you're powerless, like you need his power and his grace in your life that you know you can't do it on your own anymore, to say, Jesus, I need you to be my savior and bring me forgiveness and bring me peace where there's been chaos and bring me your joy where there's been guilt and God, to bring me hope where all I've seen is just darkness. God, I need you to be my savior. And today, if you haven't known him as your savior, you, you can pray and ask him to be your savior and to be your Lord, which is where you say, God, I give my life to you. I look to you to bring me purpose. I look to you to bring me hope. I look to you to guide my decisions. And when we make Jesus our Savior and our Lord, we find that he justifies us and reconciles us. He saves us by his love for us. And it's this powerful truth. And it's why we remember Good Friday. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it changed everything. And so before we come to the Lord's table, it may be that you're here today. And, and you would say to me, Chad, I need that grace in my life. Chad, I need that forgiveness. I need to make Jesus my Savior and my Lord. Then I want to take a moment before we come to this time of communion. We're going we're to pray a prayer. 
If you're here today, and I've, I've got just two questions for you. If you're here today and you know that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord, and on this Good Friday, you remember, you commemorate, you thank God for what Jesus did on the cross for you. Would you just raise your hand? You know that he's your Lord and Savior. You thank him for that today. That's awesome. Man, hands all over. Here's my second question that maybe you're here and you'd say, today I need Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. Whether you're in this room or you're in Auditorium 2 or even if you're watching on a screen somewhere, if you know that you need Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord today, to make things right between you and God, would you just raise your hand right now? That's you. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, awesome. I see those hands. Anybody else? You know you need Jesus to be your Lord and Savior today. Here's what I'm going to do. If you raised your hand either one of those times, you know he is your Savior or you need him to be. Would you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus, for sending your Son to die for my sin. I ask today that you'd forgive my sin, change my life, be my Savior, and be my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the ushers to come at this time, and we're going to share together in communion. Paul writes to the church about communion. He says this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So in just a moment, the elements will be distributed. The, the bread, which represents Christ's broken body, the cup, which represents his shed blood. I'd ask that you hold on to all those things. And then once everyone's been served, we're going to take time to share in those things. And we'll, we'll share in those things together. But as we, as we sing, as we worship, as we prepare our hearts for communion, would you search your own heart? And maybe there is a sin that you need to ask God's forgiveness for. Maybe there's a place where you've tried to take care of things in your life and you need to release those things to him. Maybe there's a moment where you need to examine your own heart, your relationship with God, or maybe your relationship with someone else and ask for his forgiveness and grace. Let's examine and prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's table today. Hold on to those elements. We'll all share in those together in just a moment. Ushers, you may serve. Corner 
his face I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil Christ thank you for this moment that on this Good Friday which truthfully God the day we commemorate was anything but good but what made it good was how Jesus your sacrifice changed everything that because of what you did on the cross we don't have to be called the names we once were we're not powerless because our power is in you. We're not ungodly because you're God with us. We're not sinners because we have a Savior. And we're not enemies because, Jesus, your death justified us and reconciled us and saved us because of your love. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, God, for demonstrating your love in that way. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Father, we thank you for the bread that symbolizes, Jesus, your broken body. Lord, how much we need your sacrifice. And we thank you for it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's share in the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, Father, we thank you for the cup. More than just a symbol. It's a reminder that we have been made right in God's sight through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that in your blood is life. Lord, somebody here today needs to hear that there's life available to them. Maybe around them they've sensed death or, or they've sensed frustration or they've experienced loss. 
and they need to know that in you there's light. Jesus, we're reminded that because of your blood, there's healing. Somebody here today needs a healing touch from you. Lord, in their body, because there's, there's been a diagnosis or a weakness or a disease or, or, or an experience that has left them in need of healing. Jesus, thank you that there's healing available by your blood. Lord, somebody here today needs hope. And the blood reminds us, your sacrifice reminds us, we do this in remembrance of you until you come, that you're coming again, that there is hope. No matter the situation we're in, no matter the situation our job's in or our marriage is in or our family's in, no matter the, the doubt or the depression or what we may be facing in this season, that there's hope through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we don't just join in religious symbolism we drink this cup as a remembrance of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that changes everything. Lord, we thank you for this as we share in the cup together. Let's share in the cup together. Could I ask you to stand with me if you would, please? And, and if you're comfortable to do this, would you just lift your hands to the Lord? Would you just thank him right now for your sacrifice? We're going to continue to sing. We're going we're to take just a moment to worship before we leave. But would you right now just thank him? God, we thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. When he shall come with trumpet sounds, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his right. Fall to stand before the throne. things if you uh, today prayed to ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord or if you want more information on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ as you leave the auditorium today you'll see a card that looks like this it says I have decided 
grab one of these, take it into our connection center out in the atrium. There's some friends that are there, some of our team that would love to pray with you, talk with you a little bit more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We have a Bible we wanna give to you and uh, are so thankful that God is doing something special in your life. Also, our Easter services, we are so looking forward to it. I was a part of the rehearsal last night and so excited to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Four and six tomorrow on Saturday, and then our regular service times, 8, 15, 10, and 11, 45. We'll have our generation service at 8, 15, and 10, and we'll also have live worship in all three services on Sunday in Auditorium 2, and we are looking forward to what God's gonna do. Let me pray for you before we go. Father, thanks for this Good Friday. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us, and that we could, we could take this time today and remember. Lord, we thank you for Good Friday, but we're so aware that the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all the difference. And so it's with the, the shadow of the cross in our view that we look ahead to Sunday, that we celebrate and remember what you've done for us through your sacrifice and your resurrection. And so Lord, we pray that we would be mindful of all that you've done so that we wouldn't be enemies anymore, but that we could be your loved children. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Father, would you send us out with your special favor, and with your wonderful peace? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great weekend. We'll see you tomorrow or Sunday. Take care.